Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. If you would like to support the History of Byzantium podcast, but also get a free audiobook in the process, then check out Audible's service. They remain the leading provider of audiobooks anywhere on the internet with thousands upon thousands of titles to choose from. If you've enjoyed hearing about Justinian's favorite general, then why not check out Count Belisarius by Robert Graves. Graves is the man who wrote the famous I, Claudius series, and here he uses Procopius's accounts to put together a historical novel describing Belisarius's exploits from the point of view of one of Antonina's servants. A historical novel can be a great way to immerse yourself in a particular area of history. I know I've really enjoyed Robert Harris's books about Cicero. So if you live in the US or Canada and want to check out Count Belisarius or any other Audible book, then go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic to start your free trial. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 40, Questions. Thanks again to all of you who sent in 6th century questions. As expected, they cover all sorts of aspects of Byzantine life, some of which are hard to answer specifically just about this time period, and some of which are hard to answer at all. I've done my best to provide some insights, and I'll direct you to other sources where I can. I've managed to fit a few questions into the last couple of podcasts, and there will be another batch in next week's episode. But today, I will be tackling all those questions which didn't fit anywhere else. So, listener G asks, I recall a legend about Belisarius being blinded by a jealous Justinian. Could you talk about that story and how much, if any of it, is true? Yes, you heard that correctly. A story appeared around the 10th century, as far as we can tell, that Justinian actually had Belisarius' eyes put out and left him to beg for a living in the streets. This story gained sympathy amongst writers and painters in the 18th century, drawing parallels with the repressive monarchs of their own time. You can see a couple of those paintings at thehistoryofbyzantium.com or on Facebook. What probably gave the story some credence is that Belisarius was named as part of a conspiracy to overthrow the emperor in 562, a couple of years before both men died. 
It was too minor an incident to mention on the podcast, but the sources say that Belisarius was placed under house arrest for a few months before Justinian restored him to favour. The suggestion that Belisarius was blinded is not mentioned by contemporary sources, and it would be very out of character for Justinian to so cruelly punish anyone, let alone a man he clearly held in high esteem. There were several small assassination plots which came to light during Justinian's reign, but he never seemed to harshly punish anyone. It also seems highly unlikely that after decades of loyalty, Belisarius would suddenly decide to overthrow the emperor. Most likely, the conspirators had planned to offer the diadem to Belisarius should they have succeeded in killing Justinian, knowing that the great general was someone the crowds might accept as their new sovereign. So my assumption, like that of most historians, is that the story is a fiction. Its origins in the 10th century, when blinding was a more common punishment for usurpers, perhaps confirms its later creation. Actual stories were then written, building on this legend, where Belisarius tries to conquer Britain for Justinian, and then have him begging on the streets of Rome, rather than Constantinople. So, yeah, nonsense. A related question comes from listener N.L., who says, I was under the impression that Justinian was the last native Latin-speaking emperor, but your introduction of Tiberius II makes it seem like he was too. As I mentioned in my introduction to both Justin II and Tiberius II, we just don't know whether they spoke Latin. We don't know anything at all about Tiberius's upbringing, or really where in the Balkans he was from, so it's just a guess that he might have spoken Latin since he got on so well with the House of Justinian. Similarly, Justin II may have been born in Constantinople, so he may well have spoken only Greek fluently, but we just don't know. So historians can only say that Justinian was the last native Latin-speaking emperor, as far as we know. Listener NL also asks, Is there any way of knowing how the 100,000 gold pieces that the Avars asked Maurice for compares with the 700 or 1,400 pounds of gold that the Romans paid annually to Attila and his Huns? Yes, absolutely. This is one area of history where we have enough information to be roughly accurate about these sums. Throughout the history of Byzantium, I've been referring to large payments in terms of pounds of gold. In part, just so you could compare the amounts to the 1400 Attila received, and similar amounts mentioned on the history of Rome. But pounds of gold in practical terms meant actual gold coins. So we can work out the actual number of coins, or nomisma, that were being handed over. Rather than explain the exchange rate, though, for now I will stick with pounds of gold. The Avars may have asked for more, but the most they received in a year was around 1,100 pounds of gold, while Attila had in his best year received 2,100 pounds of gold. So the Avars had one pretty good year, but weren't consistently being paid, as the Huns had been. At the beginning of our podcast, Anastasius had agreed to pay £550 for peace with the Persians, and Tiberius had paid around £400 a year during his truce with the Sassanids. But the single largest payment the Byzantines would ever make was by Justinian for the Eternal Peace, which ended up being eight years long. 
That amount, you may recall, was £11,000 of gold. So 10 times what Attila received. Large amounts indeed, but the whole imperial budget was millions of gold coins strong. Over £100,000 of gold around this time, with most of that being spent on the army. Listener S asks, did the Byzantines maintain a standing fleet at all times? Were they arranged in different theatres, such as the Black Sea Squadron or the Mediterranean Fleet? And also in this period, did they have Greek fire? Quick comment on that last part is no. What we understand as Greek fire has not appeared just yet in the narrative, but when it does, trust me, I will tell you about it. As for the standing fleets, well, as you know, the Romans never cared about seafaring that much. It was always the soldiers in the land armies who got the attention and the glory. To be fair, though, between the Battle of Actium, when Augustus defeated Antony, and the conquest of Carthage by the Vandals, the Romans didn't have any enemies in the Mediterranean. They controlled all the land around their sea, and so a massive navy was never a priority. Of course, some military vessels were always maintained, as you never know when civil war or piracy might break out, but sources are relatively thin on the ground for the Byzantine period. The evidence suggests that there were three main concentrations of naval forces, one around Constantinople, one in Ravenna, and one to patrol the Danube River. These were understandably the three places where naval forces were most needed. The Lombards had no navy, but warships were needed there to guard supply vessels that kept the Byzantine cities in Italy up and running. Meanwhile, squadrons had been patrolling the Danube for centuries now, looking out for hostile people trying to cross. In theory, if Roman soldiers could be transported up and down the river networks, they could surprise their enemies with an unexpected landing. As far as we can tell, the navy was treated a little like the Limitanii soldiers, the farmer soldiers who lived along the borders. So the men who staffed the navy were not commissioned officers and were not paid at the same level as the field armies. Presumably they were expected to make a living elsewhere and would be paid allowances when the treasury could spare them. Our best guess for the size of the navy is based on the invasion fleet which Belisarius took to Africa. Procopius claims that there were 92 single-decked warships, and this could represent most of the fleet. By this time, the fleet would be made up of Dromon warships, as they're spelt, or Thromon, as they would be pronounced in Greek. These ships were to become the backbone of the Byzantine navy, and were known and named for their speed. They had a full deck, meaning the men rowing were protected from missile fire, and latine sails, the triangular shape, as opposed to the half-decks and square sails of the earlier Roman navy. Listener M asks, what did daily life look like for an emperor? While listener LS asks what life was like for a typical citizen. Mike Duncan did a very fine job describing a day in the life of a city-dwelling Roman back in the age of the Antonines, and what he said then remains true now, uh, in that a typical citizen would have been a farmer whose life was out in the fields, 
So perhaps it's easier for me to just draw on a few of the changes in city life in the Byzantine era. And of course, we largely covered these two episodes ago when we saw how the classical city was morphing into the medieval one. So people were spending less time in the baths and more time in church. But another major change in city life was the dominance of the calendar by religious services and processions. All sorts of special days were now commemorated. Feast days, saints days, martyrs days, the start of the liturgical year, the anniversary of the emperor's reign, the birthday of the city, the commemoration of previous emperors or severe earthquakes or the opening of a new church. All these days would be the cause for processions or special services. And another change, of course, was that the Hippodrome had become a bigger feature of life, at least for cities that had one, with the disappearance of amphitheatres, making the passion for chariot racing somehow even more all-consuming than it had been. Hence the growth in the importance of the Blues and the Greens, who were now responsible for most of the city's entertainment. Both these changes would have been part of the daily life of an emperor. When he had the time, he was expected to host the races and take part in church processions and services. In both cases, it was seen as one of the emperor's responsibilities to be seen to take part in public life, to provide the entertainment or to take communion with his people. The rest of the emperor's day would likely be spent in the palace. Messages would flood in every day from every corner of the empire, which had to be summarized and brought to the emperor's attention. Letters from generals out in the fields or legal cases that the Praetorian prefects didn't feel comfortable making judgments on. There were meetings to attend with various advisers, senators or bishops, ambassadors to greet and entertain, banquets to host, and of course, a family to spend time with. So the emperor was an incredibly busy man. I haven't read much about any of them getting any downtime since Theodosius II fell off his horse while hunting back in 450. But doubtless they did have hobbies they occasionally indulged, although the only man we know enough about would be Justinian, who spent his spare time reading religious texts. Listener GM asks, what kind of food would the citizens of Constantinople have eaten? Well, bread was still the key to most citizens' diet, whether provided as part of the public dole or bought on the open market. Many families would grow their own vegetables and keep chickens too. So that gave you eggs, while the capital's abundant markets and stalls would provide cheese, fruit and wine if you could afford them. For those who couldn't, soup or stew might be your best bet, as boiling was the simplest way to cook perhaps with figs or walnuts to accompany it. Surrounded on three sides by water, the capital had access to tuna, mackerel and sturgeon, as well as fish from further afield. There were animal markets, of course, but meat was less available than it is today. Pigs were slaughtered at the beginning of winter so that sausages, salt pork and lard could be stocked up for the coming months. In finer circles, the Byzantines seemed to have enjoyed sweet dishes if they could get their hands on them. Honey cakes, syrupy sweetmeats, quince marmalade, rice pudding, and various bread dishes mixed with sugar and raisins went down a treat. That's just a quick summary, and obviously we have trouble dating any culinary inventions, so I'll stop there.
Listener YP asks about eunuchs. Where did they come from? What purpose did they serve? And how did the practice of employing them begin? To answer the last question first, eunuchs have a long tradition as imperial servants going back to ancient times, particularly in China and Egypt. But the need for Roman imperial eunuchs developed with Diocletian's redefinition of the office of emperor. Once the Augustus turned from princeps to dominus, it was important to limit access to the emperor as much as possible. But that put a lot of power in the hands of the few men who were allowed direct physical access to the emperor and, of course, his family. And so eunuchs were seen as the ideal choice. They were unlikely to be physical threats, they were incapable of being a sexual menace, and they were unable to have families of their own, and so would be less likely to take part in conspiracies against the emperor because their loyalty lay with him. Of course, a Christian society could hardly tolerate the mutilation of young boys. You may recall Justinian outlawed the practice in the empire. So in 600 AD, at least most eunuchs came from beyond the frontiers. Boys captured in war or sold into slavery, often from Armenia or the various kingdoms in the Caucasus. Some, though, were free-born and castrated by their own families because it was considered that a better life awaited them that way than toiling in the fields. Although they weren't quite as ubiquitous in 600 AD, the growing trend in Byzantium was to be far more welcoming to eunuchs than most other states. It had almost become a necessity to be a eunuch to work as an imperial chamberlain, and over time more and more jobs would appear within the palace, reserved only for them. Most wealthy families would have some eunuch servants, where they might serve the lady of the house or teach the children. The giving of castrated slaves was considered a prestigious and welcome gift. Eunuchs were also welcome in the service of the church, where their high-pitched voices were a valued addition to the empire's choirs. But more than that, they were allowed to become priests and even bishops. In many nunneries, only eunuchs were allowed to visit and perform the Eucharist, or communion. We already saw in our narrative that Narses was so trusted by Justinian that he was allowed to amass great wealth, lead armies, and even become exarch of Italy. So despite the fear and revulsion that many felt toward them, eunuchs really could lead a prominent and powerful life in Byzantium. The hypocrisy of accepting castrated men into imperial service, despite banning the practice, doesn't seem to have troubled anyone unduly. We even hear the argument made that their chastity had been preserved through the act of castration. Listener E says, I'd love to hear something about the calendars in use at the time. As far as I know, the Julian calendar, as instigated by Julius Caesar, was still the way the year was measured in 6th century Byzantium. It wasn't until a thousand years later that the Gregorian version would appear to correct the various errors it contained. Two wrinkles in the answer, though, are that many Byzantine documents date the world not BC or AD, but instead from the date of creation. Using biblical accounts, combined with what historical dates they were sure of, men calculated the date of creation as September the 1st, 5509 BC. 
There is some variation in different texts as to exactly when Adam and Eve walked the earth. And in Byzantium, September the 1st was considered the first day of the year, which adds a nice amount of confusion when trying to link up historical events across different civilizations. Byzantine government documents were also dated by indiction. Indictions originally referred to the reassessment of an area of land in Egypt, presumably to check what the land was producing for tax purposes. This seems to have been part of Diocletian's efforts to better organize the empire. By the late 4th century, many other government documents were being dated by the year of indiction, and Justinian issued an edict that all documents must be stamped with it. By the 6th century, the indiction was a 15-year cycle, so we find documents saying year 1 of the indiction, year 12 of the indiction, and so on. Clearly, it continued to be beneficial to imperial bureaucrats for many centuries. Listener TBD asked for more information on engineering and medicine. For engineering, I will have to direct you elsewhere, as it's a bit too complex to be able to deal with briefly. There are plenty of books on the subject, and if I come across one I particularly like, it will appear in the bibliography at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. On medicine, I can be a little more specific, but let's start with the general. In the narrative, you've already heard about the building of hospitals across the empire, something I think we can call a Byzantine innovation, as it wasn't part of the pre-Christian empire in anything like the same way. In Constantinople, these institutions clearly preface our own modern hospitals with a chief physician, nurses and orderlies. But even out in remote places, monasteries would have often have areas designated for the healing of the sick. This is one of the most obviously positive aspects of Christianity. Jesus healed people, and he cared for everyone regardless of social background. This attitude to human health and well-being meant that the medical profession benefited from the Christianizing of the Roman world. It was a two-way street, though, with the great Greco-Roman writers such as Hippocrates and Galen being cherished and reproduced for generations of doctors to study and learn from. Hospitals were run in different ways, with the government, the church and wealthy citizens all providing the money needed. Care was offered free of charge to the poor, while the well-off would be asked to contribute, Justinian began the practice of the state providing subsidies so that private doctors would work free of charge for at least some of the year. Around the capital was probably the best place to fall ill, as the university there trained young doctors, while hospices and leper houses sprung up to take care of those most in need. It's difficult to talk about specific medical innovations from the 6th century, but another advantage that Byzantium offered to the profession was its maintenance of libraries. Oribasius, the Emperor Julian's personal physician, compiled major medical works from ancient authors, while in the 7th century, Paul of Aegina would write a medical compendium in seven books that was massively influential on Islamic as well as Western European doctors for centuries to come. His work touched on all sorts of surprising things like gynecology, diet, treatment of the elderly, 
and mental illness that we might think of as quite modern. The descriptions of surgery are also enlightening, with even accounts of cataracts or cancerous growths being cut out of the body. Evidence from law also suggests a fairly modern attitude to the medical establishment with punishments for abuse, negligence and fraud. There was particular concern for inexperienced doctors giving treatment that they were not trained to provide. We shouldn't forget, though, that many ordinary people sought out the divine rather than a doctor when they were ill. It was widely believed that relics, icons, and the sites of saints and martyrs could heal the body of various ailments. There were patron saints of epidemics, of pediatrics, of uh, genital diseases, even of dental care. There were also numerous folk remedies, such as the wearing of special amulets that people clung to in the hope that it might heal them. Nor should we overstate the performance of the Byzantine medical establishment. Without modern immunization techniques, child mortality remained as high as it always had been, and life expectancy for the poor remained around 40 in the 6th century. Medicine, like many other subjects, is one that it's not easy to subdivide by century. Procopius didn't uh, list off the medical care available to him as much as it would have been extremely helpful if he had. If we're all still here come 1453, perhaps we can deal with topics like this in more detail. Listener T, in a similar vein, asks about developments in science and maths, which would require much longer answers. But he also asks whether there was a decline after the 6th century. For example, the Hagia Sophia being such a triumph of mathematics and architecture, why did nothing else touch it for the rest of Byzantium's history? I've simplified the question, but I think you get the gist. And I think the answer in broad terms is that the Byzantines still produced great architects and great thinkers, and perhaps on another occasion we can touch on them. But after the 6th century, they would never have had the resources at their disposal that the men who built the Hagia Sophia did. First the plague hit, and then as we will come to, the Arabs will take the eastern provinces. It's no surprise then that more mathematical and scientific innovations came from the Muslim world, as the caliphate would soon command the kind of resources that only briefly rested in Justinian's hands. Byzantine architecture would of course go on with many innovative and interesting buildings being erected, but none on that scale. Listener T did also ask about education and whether it had changed since the rather brutal primary school lessons we heard about back during the history of Rome. Certainly primary teachers and grammarians were still found in towns in the 6th century, but I imagine practices were at least a little different in the East than they had been in Rome itself, and with fewer children being educated, the classroom practice that Mike described was probably less relevant. As we heard when discussing eunuchs, the children of the wealthy may have been taught at home, where they were treated far more kindly. The existence of the great universities of the East demonstrate that plenty of people had not had a love of learning beaten out of them just yet, and when men entered a monastery they would often be taught how to read and write. Speaking of learned men, listener BB asks, I'm astounded that so much information exists about this period of time. How was this achieved? 
any writings on parchment or other materials would have disintegrated. Perhaps librarians perpetually rewrote them, but I assume that the number of literate persons was relatively small, so that there were only a handful of trained people that were capable of doing this. And how were the parchments stored, indexed, or organized? How were these libraries paid for, and who had the privilege of using them? Was the work performed by monks or scholars? How did such materials survive the ravages of war? And what kept such records from being purged by an emperor intent on changing history? I include the whole question to give you a sense of all the issues. I don't actually plan on answering all of it. But as you can see, to answer it fully would probably need a whole new podcast, or if you want... There are plenty of good books on the subject. For example, Scribes and Scholars, A Guide to the Transmission of Greek and Latin Literature by L.D. Reynolds and N.G. Wilson. Within the question, listener B.B. has answered many of his own queries. Anything written on any kind of paper will eventually decay. A few texts have amazingly survived centuries but usually only because they were sealed or stored somewhere dry and out of the reach of human civilization. For the vast majority of texts, if they weren't copied, then they wouldn't survive. In a way, the real answer to this question is that listener BB shouldn't be astounded by how much survives from this period. We just about have the 6th century covered, thanks to Procopius, and yes, there are a few other writers from the same period, but actually, I've quoted most of those authors during the podcast. That's maybe five or six men covering a hundred years of history. The reality is that so few texts did survive from antiquity that our knowledge of certain people and events is hugely biased because we only have one source to tell us about them. Writers like Procopius would indeed have been copied by both scholars and monks, I'm sure many of you will have heard of the work of Irish missionaries in copying Latin texts, or the great efforts by the Muslim scholars of Baghdad, or of those under Charlemagne to increase the available texts by great efforts of copying. In Byzantium, the situation was similar. The universities had libraries which did some copying, and plenty of monasteries which did the same. It's accurate to say that most of the time there were only a select number of men capable and available to do this. And they would of course select which texts they wanted to copy. Many books are referenced in what survives that we no longer have copies of. How did these texts survive war? Many didn't. We know that when Constantinople fell in 1453, and leading up to that event, many Byzantines fled west, taking their books with them but many did not, and so many texts were lost. Obviously, the fact that Constantinople was not sacked for a good 900 years helped many texts to survive. The Byzantines would often send books to foreign governments as gifts, which helped in a small way to spread ancient writing, and the Theodosian walls did protect a good number of texts inside the city, whether they be the university library, the palace library, the library of the patriarch, or of those wealthy citizens who cared to collect. Some books therefore did manage to survive both the Crusader sack of 1204 and the final fall in 1453. And the fact that wealthy men and various monasteries still valued ancient texts is another crucial point in their survival. 
Despite the increasing Christianization, the Byzantines never turned on their past. In fact, elite culture continued to value many of the classical works of antiquity, aiding their survival. Although these men would probably not copy out texts themselves, their interest in preserving the written word helped provide sponsorship and a market for the reproduction of texts. There were no public libraries, so we rely on the work of private, state, or church collections. Finally, the question about an emperor editing history is an interesting one. Perhaps as I go along I will learn more about the emperor's direct involvement with collections that existed. The point I'd make about that, though, is many of the histories which survive were approved by or written for an emperor. Procopius's accounts of the wars were published while Justinian was alive. Much of the criticism we perceive in them comes from comparing what he wrote for public consumption against the secret history, where he was far harsher. And the major accounts of the lives of, say, Constantine and Heraclius, who's coming up next in our story, were written specifically by their admirers, who were glorifying the lives of their patron. So in many cases, the emperors had no fear of their own press, and probably encouraged criticism of their predecessors or rivals. But it would be hard for the emperor to edit the past once histories had been copied and passed outside the emperor's borders. And I think, as we'll see, the emperor's control of their own territory became increasingly insecure over the 7th and 8th centuries. So it would be much harder than it was for, say, Augustus when he tried to have Mark Antony purged from the public record. Right, that's all for the questions today. Next week, we reach the end of our 6th century question and answer session by looking at the issue of identity in Byzantium. Remember, if you're enjoying the podcast and you use iTunes, please give it a review and help spread the word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.